We are in Mark chapter 15, verse 34 through 47. If you're watching online, thank you very much. We do have a new camera this week. So we've, uh, I, the last camera I bought was 2011, so 2010. And so we got a new camera. Hopefully that's looking good. Uh, and the notes, as always, on generationword.com homepage, right there underneath the live feed. Just click notes and you get tonight's notes. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 34 through 47. We should finish this chapter. Uh, we've talked about it quite a bit last week. We went to uh, the suffering servant verses and, and saw Jesus go through the, the, the fulfillment of the suffering in chapter 22 of Psalms, Isaiah 53. But throughout that whole time, there was always an anticipation of hope. There's always an anticipation of good things that were taking place. There was, it was, he was suffering, but he was suffering in hope with, with something to be accomplished. And that's kind of where we leave off right here. We, we've talked about that quite extensively last week. Uh, chapter 15, verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, Elama Sabashani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Speaking in Aramaic. Mark keeps it in Aramaic. Uh, we have it translated into English, uh, which is uh, the beginning of Psalm 22. And... Uh, we can go to other Gospels where he says the end of Psalm 22 when he says it is finished or it has been accomplished. And so Jesus is accomplishing something on the cross, uh, which is, of course, our salvation. But he's doing much more than that as far as bringing God's plan to fulfillment of, of him becoming God, becoming a man and uniting and bringing things together again on the cross, a great work. And it, it, it's, it, the victory has been won. I mean, it's not like, and now we're going to start the battle. It's the battle was the cross. He accomplished it and says, it is finished. And now that we're in that, what we, you know, Paul refers to as the victorious uh, procession. Uh, we can see that. Okay, now, as he's on the cross and he's in the final moments in chapter 15, verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it says, behold, he is calling Elijah, misunderstanding what he was saying. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. So it's pretty clear. I would, I'm, I'm uh, you know, going to try to read into this that Jesus is near death and they can tell that he's near death quick go get him this sour wine and if you turn the page he's already been offered at the beginning uh something to drink that would have been some kind of a a a, a, a uh, some kind of a stimulant or a painkiller that he rejected once once it was on his lips he rejected it but this is a different drink a different be a beverage uh it's point four on page two uh the drink is uh it referred to it's called uh oxys or it's a word for sharp in the greek and it's made from water egg and vinegar and it's a drink for the soldiers this would be something the soldiers had and it's a refreshing drink like a power aid or something like that that the soldiers would have and so what they're actually doing it would appear uh, jesus is about to die it's like wait wait he's he's still talking he's still and now this is not just any guy dying on the cross this guy has raised the dead he's he's healed the leper he's uh, done a variety of miracles and so there is some possibly anticipation what's going to happen and now right here he's crying out to elijah quick don't let him die let's see what happens and they may be trying to keep him alive again if you read that here, let me just read it again and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying wait 
let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Right there. Wait, don't let this happen. Let's see if there's another part to the story. Uh, again, I'm you know, putting that in there. You don't have to accept that. I don't think they're doing it for mercy. They're saying, wait, let's not let him die. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And that loud cry may have been what we see in other uh, uh, Gospels, the last part of Psalm 22, which he's been quoting earlier. Uh, uh, it is finished, or it has been accomplished. It is done. Uh, meaning he has suffered, but he's remained in hope, and now it's accomplished. Again, realizing Jesus is not out of control. He's not, you know, lost his mind. He still knows what's going on, is in total control. Uh, and now, uh, and he uttered a loud cry and, and breathed his last. So he, he has died. Now, there are three ideas on how he died. Uh, one would be a ruptured heart. Uh, I've taught the point B before, asphyxiation, is that how you say it? I'm stumbling here, uh, as breathing became more difficult, and uh, because he's hanging on the cross, and that's why they came by and broke the thieves' legs, because they're supporting themselves with their legs. At some point, there may be a, a board that he's, they're sitting on. Some older writings would say that he sat on a cross, and he would be lifting himself up, breathing, and uh, it's just getting too hard, and so he, he can't breathe anymore. Uh, if I've got it noted there, more current experiments that have taken place or research that it probably was not asphyxiation that he died from that. That wasn't the issue. But point C, or the idea C, was from the shock of extreme physical torture and punishment. Now, he's going to die. We're, we're going to read it here in just a moment. Pilate's going to be surprised that he's dead. Or is, he's already dead. And it's like, then he's going to send for the centurion the guy that's guarding, he's like, wait, I've got a report that he's dead. Someone wants the body. Is he already dead? And since, yes, he, 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 he has died. Now, they're going to come by later and break the bones of the thief's leg so they'll die quicker. Uh, you could die on the, you could be on the cross for an extended period of time. I, last thing I read, not, not last thing, but many years ago I read that there was someone was on the cross for like eight days. And you, a lot of times you could be alive, and your problem was not that you're, you're dying, but that you're pinned down and being eaten by birds. You, it's like you're, you're become flesh, and it's just what a terrible death. And again, it was, it was a common uh, type of execution. So there's many records of people dying on crosses, including in 70 AD, the Jews dying outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and people were waiting for people to die so they could nail someone else on the cross. Um, so he, he may have died from the shock extreme because he's gone through a lot. He's been beaten, you know, whipped. I mean, the whipping could have killed someone. And probably from dehydration and loss of blood is what really put him physically over the edge that caused him to die early. Now, when he dies, chapter 15, verse 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in the temple, you're going to have, whoops, that's a bad temple. That's this, one's, this one's a much better temple. Okay, that's supposed to be a square. That's just for the sake of those right there. That's the holy place. There's a curtain. And this is the most, most holy place. This is the holy place. This has got the uh, table of showbread. This has got the lampstand. Here's a little altar right here. And this would be where the Ark of the Covenant should be, but it is not there because it vanished before the Babylonian captivity in 586 or Babylon took it. It's not, but it's not recorded. All these other things recorded going to Babylon, including the, the bronze pillars. Jacob and Boaz were crushed and taken to Babylon, melted down. The Ark of the Covenant never recorded in Scripture. It appears someone hid it before. There's speculation. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that tonight. 
But nonetheless, there was no Ark of the Covenant in this temple. This could be the curtain right here that was torn, but no one would have saw it because only the priest can come in here and see this. So it would have had to be a report from the priest saying, hey, the curtain got torn. Uh, so that could be. Then out here, you're going to have the outer court. You're going to have the bronze basin and, uh, and, and the bronze altar. This would be where the priests and Levites would operate. And the court of the men, the Jewish men, would be here. But there was another curtain separating the court of the men from the court of the women. And that would be wide open to the public. Uh, it could be, and again, I, I don't know, and you can spend more time researching it. Uh, this may be the curtain that was torn right here. Josephus describes it. I can read it to you here in a minute. It's a tapestry, very elegant tapestry. Uh, some I would say it's a Babylonian tapestry because it's where some very nice things came from. But it portrayed the earth and the heavens, and it was kind of like just an image of the whole creation on that 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 tarp now, or that that curtain tarp construction. Um, now, a couple things about this. It's it's, it's easy to say, and again, I don't want to create a doctrine here or something or, you know, come against something that's very holy, but some basic facts. In the wilderness, we saw the tabernacle, you know, in the scriptures, when the, when the tabernacle was built, then the glory of God came down and entered the holy place. It entered the ark. The glory of God came into the tabernacle. When they then built the temple, Solomon built the temple, there was a day where they opened the temple and the glory of God entered. It came down into the temple. In fact, it says the priests couldn't operate. They came out. It's like the glory of God is too thick in there. Uh, the, the, you, you couldn't. And, that were, they, and, and that's where things would happen. A king went back in there. Azariah, Uzziah, went back in there. to. He wanted to be a priest. And he went in here to offer. He entered this part and was going to burn incense on the altar. Broke out in leprosy. Uh, Go back to the tabernacle, uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's older two sons, went in and burned the wrong incense on this same altar. Again, it was the wrong, it made up their own incense. And it, 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 it exploded, killed them. They dropped dead. And God says, take them out and throw them in the dump. Don't even have, don't mourn for them. And so the presence of God was serious there. You couldn't just go in there and, and, and not have something happen to you. Uh, David, when he was bringing the ark from uh, the Philistines, they opened it up, or some people opened it up, and uh, they, 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 they were killed. And so this idea of the presence of God is, is real, and it manifested in the tabernacle, and it manifested in the temple of Solomon. Now, before 586 B.C., and I've got these numbers written down here as far as the chapters, so you can see. I'm looking here. The current was, okay, I'm looking, yeah, point three. Uh, the glory of the Lord God entered the tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple of Solomon's day. But once the glory had left the temple in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 10. So sometime around, uh, Ezekiel's taken captive in, in 597. Temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. So and I, think, I know you could op just open up your Bible and get the date. But sometime after 597, we'll just say 590, and I, that, that, I'm not sure what year, that it, what year it was, but it's Ezekiel chapter 10, I should open the Bible and look. Um, Ezekiel has a vision of several, there's several visions that he has of the temple while he's in Babylon. And one is that the glory of God rises up, there's been several 
and I've got maps. If you go to the Ezekiel page, I've got maps of each of these chapters showing you the movement of things that were taking place. It's very, very interesting, very enlightening. But the glory of God lifted up from the Ark of the Covenant and came out here and crossed the threshold and was at the front of the temple. And then during that chapter, he sees the glory rise up and leave the temple mount right here and then go up and hover over the Mount of Olives which where this picture is taken from and then disappeared and that glory when they re come back in 538 and they're supposed to build the temple uh, and they only get the foundation laid and the altar they start again in 520 and finish in 516 bc and that's called zerubbabel's temple uh, there's no report of the glory in fact there's the ark of the covenant never comes back after 586 there's no Ark of the Covenant. No, there's no. In 516, when the temple's up and running, no Ark of the Covenant. You go back here, there's nothing there. Uh, now, when uh, Antiochus Epiphany comes, he comes and he desecrates the temple, sets up his own sacrifice. Pompey, when the Romans come and set uh, uh, civil wars going on in Jerusalem, oh, what we're talking, uh, you know, 69 BC. I, I'm trying to figure, think of a date. Um, it escapes me. But it was during the Jewish civil wars between the Pharisees and the Sadducees after the Greeks and the Hasmoneans had, had taken over and there's wars going on. Pompey came in and stopped the civil war, the Jews killing each other. And he decides, I want to see what's in the temple. And Pompey, the Roman general, walks through here, pulls this curtain open and looks at it and goes, what? No God? I mean, they're, they're, they're thinking idol, image, some kind of a god there. And there's, there's nothing. And he turned, you know what happened to him? He went back to Rome. Not, I mean, nothing. It's like, and so there was no glory in this temple like you had in the tabernacle of Moses or the te te uh, temple of Solomon. Once it, it leaves in Ezekiel, uh, in that vision, you no longer have the glory of God in the temple. Now, I'm not saying, well, I, I'm biblically, there's no record of the glory of God entering the temple or anyone going back there and something happened. Now, you do have, in the beginning of the Gospels, coming in here to this altar of incense, John the Baptist's father uh, coming in to burn incense. It was his turn. And standing at the right side of the altar was the Gab angel Gabriel and begins, begins to talk to uh, Zachariah and tell him you're going to have a son and he says oh, he's got questions and then he gives him a sign you're not going to be able to talk and he comes out and, and he was in there a long time and people thought maybe he died something happened because but nothing happened the angel talked to him he comes out and he can speak again once he names John the Baptist but that was miraculous that was just the angel appearing to him while he's burning it was his turn now there's a lot, lot many priests would live their entire lives and never get to enter the holy place and only one uh, maybe in a generation would ever be the high priest that would get to go in here once a year. So you could be a priest your entire life and never, not get drawn for a lot to go in here and change the bread or light the candles or burn the incense. And if you're not the high priest, you're never going back here. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not until, uh, uh, in my mind, a future day when Ezekiel records in Ezekiel 43, this is a new temple is built and the glory of God appears in the future on the Mount of Olives coming from the east 
and then comes in through this gate or the eastern gate and goes into the temple on Mount Moriah and enters here and we are in the millennium. It's after chapter 36, 37, 38 of Israel being restored and the land. And it's like it is, it is, I would say in my eschatology, it's clearly in the millennium. It's after that's the return of Jesus Christ and him entering into what I would call the millennial temple. It's not Solomon's temple. It's not Zerubbabel's temple. It's not the expanded Herodian temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. It's a temple that, and now you got to ask your question, in my eschatology, there's going to be a temple for the seven-year tribulation that's going to have to be built where the Dome of the Rock sits today, if that's correct eschatology. Uh, That's going to be the Antichrist temple because the Jews are... They're, they're, they don't have an all Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they've, they've rebuilt it on their own initiative. The glory of God hasn't done it for them because he's not going to show up until chapter 43. They're going to build a structure there that's going to be after three and a half years going to be taken over by the Antichrist. And he's going to set his own image up in here. And the Antichrist will be... Now, if the glory of God is there, I don't care if you're the Antichrist, you're not going to come in here and sit on the, your own throne in the most holy place unless God's like... I ain't there. Go ahead. Pompey went in there. Antiochus Epiphanes came in here. And the Antichrist is going to. So there's nothing going on in that temple. So it's chapter 43 of Ezekiel where God again turn, comes into the temple. And he doesn't come into that's, that's Ezekiel gave that prophecy just a few years. I mean, we're talking, you know, four, eight years. You can go back and look it up uh, before the temple was destroyed. And that never happened. Now, you could say it happened in Herod's temple, but it doesn't seem to have happened in Herod's temple. Now, the reason I'm saying, giving you a whole history on that, is because right here it says the, the curtain in the temple was torn. Uh, and I know I have to go back 30 years, 40 years, whatever. I tell, that was God saying the way to the holy place is now open. Okay, if that would fit, if it's, if it's this curtain being torn open right here. And again, I'm not, I'm not mocking or saying, I'm just saying, think about it. He's saying, this is, cor- you can now come in here. Uh, that way he's been open. But at this point, that's just, that's symbolic. There's no glory here. Or someone says, now God says, I can now come out and dwell with man. Because, uh, but you see, God's, his presence is not there uh, because the glory hadn't, hadn't come in, and it's not going to leave in 70 D. In fact, the Romans go in and check it out. I mean, Titus goes in and looks in the same place before it burnt to the ground. Titus is back there looking at it. Soldiers are back there looking at it. Um, so, and again, or if it's this curtain out here. But my whole point is that has to uh, indicate something, but how, how do you feel? You can't tie it into the glory of God coming or going necessarily because that's not just where god's glory is confined and so let me read it again and uh chapter 15 verse 38 page 2 and the when jesus had uttered a loud cry breathed his last at that point the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom so it wasn't natural it was supernatural was it this one inside separating the holy place from the most holy place was the one on the outside um and I, that's right, point one, two possible curtains, one inside the temple, and one visible from the outside of the temple, point B. According to Josephus, this curtain was a beautiful tapestry embroidered with mystical scenes of the earth, sea, and heavens. 
The other place Mark uses the same phrase, to tear, is when Jesus baptized and the tearing of heaven reveals the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. So in the same book, when Jesus baptized, the, the heavens are torn, the sky is torn, and again, what's that look like? I mean, when the heavens were torn open, I mean, Mark says that when John baptized Jesus, heaven was torn open, and the Holy Spirit, did what, what did he see? I mean, clouds separate, uh, a ripping of the sky, uh, was it symbolic? I mean, what, what was it? But heaven was torn, and the Spirit came down on Jesus, and now Jesus is crucified, and now the, the curtain uh, in the temple is torn, and now something happens. That now is, is the Spirit coming out into the world, is, is uh, the, Jesus, the sacrifice, being torn? Is it something about the presence of God coming out or us being able to go in? Uh, that, that's what Mark says. It was a sign. Something happened there. Um, and then I point three, I just give you some information there. So, I mean, it, it, be careful when you say, we, now we, the way to God is made, and Hebrews picks that up, the way to God is made, you know, the curtain is no longer separating it. And that may be the best way of explaining it. Uh, but it's just interesting that the glory of God wasn't there coming out or going in like it could have been in the tabernacle or the, the, uh, the temple. But yet the structure was still there. Okay, now when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn. Someone sees it. We don't know if the priest saw it, if it's in the outer courts, if it was reported. Uh, chapter 15, verse 39, and, then the and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, and this is a, this is a huge statement. I don't think you should just brush this aside as well as something he said, He's, because it's recorded in Mark. Of all the things Mark doesn't record and all the things people did say that aren't recorded, he records this centurion saying, truly this man was the Son of God. And now you go several places with this. Truly this man was the Son of God. You've got a Roman centurion saying, Son of God. Now, what does a Roman centurion know about the Son of God? Well, they've got all kinds of God. The emperor, uh, like when, uh, when Julius Caesar died and Octavian, his adopted son, took over the empire, Julius Caesar was deified by the Roman Senate, and that makes uh, Octavian the son of the god, Julius Caesar. And they switched his name to Augustus. Uh, and so he became Caesar Augustus, and he's nothing more than Octavian, an adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now he's Octavian, and then when Octavian or uh, 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 Caesar Augustus dies, he was deified, and the person that he had replaced, they weren't even physical sons. They're just people that were chosen to be uh, the first five emperors were uh, not sons. It wasn't until you get vespasian and his son titus and then vespasian's second son domitian that you've got the flavian dynasty one two three a father and two sons uh ruling in rome otherwise you'd be the emperor and then you'd take a man a younger man and you'd train them and you'd you know give them the, the empire they'd inherit the empire from you so that would be a son of god like like for example caesar augustus was a son of god because his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was deified by the Roman Senate. And so that, in the Roman mind, that's a son of God. 
But you understand what we're talking about. We're talking about Julius stinking Caesar uh, giving the kingdom to Caesar Augustus, who is ruling in peace. And there's all kinds of propaganda and statues that, you know, these guys are like legends. They're victorious warriors. They're ruling the empire. And here's a Roman centurion serving under the Roman emperor, who himself is either deity or on his way to being deity, and is definitely serving as the son of God or a son of God as the emperor, because his adopted father is a god. Now he's watching Jesus die on the cross between two criminals, and when Jesus breathes his last, this, this Roman centurion says, boy, that reminds me of Caesar Augustus, the way he whimpered and died and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished, and he's all beat up, and it's like, yeah, that looks like the kind of God I serve, a son of God in, 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 from the Roman Senate. It's like, that, that makes no sense. It's like, well, he was just speaking in Roman terms. If you're going to say that's Roman terms, you've got to have Alexander the Great. You've got to have Caesar Augustus. You've got to have a conquering hero. And I, as I write these things down, point one at the bottom of page two, a divine man to the Greeks or Romans would be a victory uh, or a victor, a conqueror, the emperor, Caesar. It would not be a dead, suffering, crucified criminal. Now, what I mean, again, I, I'm making a lot about, about this statement. You can just p- blow the by this. But Mark points it out, and I've got it here on the screen. It's in your notes. I learned how to take screenshots of my notes and do this. I did it right before class. Like, oh, like, I can do a lot of stuff with this now. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, here it is right here. Huios, Theu, N, right here. That means son or the son. And again, notice the article's added. Son of God was. This was the son of God. And th- this is right here. A Christian phrase, not a son of the gods, but son of God. And where have you seen something like that before? Turn the page. And you've got Matthew 16, verses 16 through 17, when Jesus is asking his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, further up north, says, who do men say that I am? Well, some, some say that you're John the Baptist, raised again, or, or uh, one of the prophets. But who do you say? And Simon says, uh, you see here, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the son of the living God. Son of the living God. Peter calls him in Matthew. Again, this is not Mark. This is Matthew. But Peter calls him son of the living God or son of God. And what does Jesus say? And Jesus said, just analyze it. What the centurion says, analyze this statement comparing to Caesar Augustus and, and all the Roman sons of God. Compare this now. He watches Jesus die on a cross between two uh, thieves. And when he breathes his last, the Roman centurion says, this is, well, says, this man was the son of God. And then you see, Jesus said to Simon, after Simon says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Simon, son of Jonah, you are happy because you did not learn this from man. My father in heaven has shown you this. So if I'm allowed to tie this verse from Matthew 16 into this event right here with the centurion, uh, you did not learn this from man. This is, not, this is not Greek mythology or Roman Senate orders. This was revealed to you. You're blessed. You're happy because my Father in heaven revealed this to you. The centurion watched Jesus die, and 
whatever's going on, this, this was the Son of God. He, if he's in the same line, again, this is a Christian phrase. This right here is a Christian phrase. You can have a Son of God, but to say the Son of God, this was, um, you're, you're in the realm of Christianity, and that would be a revelation from the Father revealing this to him. Uh, so I'm going to leave it right there like that when he says, and then the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, so he saw how he died. He's seen, this centurion has, has supervised crucifixions over and over. I mean, we, who, who knows how many crucifixions he's seen. He's just watching the clock. I mean, he's, he, this is just business as usual. But this guy saw the way he died. This was a, it was, the way Jesus died was a testimony to the Gentile Roman centurion that God could reveal uh, the deity of Christ right there. This, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So I think that's a big deal. Chapter 15, verse 40. Now here comes, a, are you ready for this? There were also women looking on from a distance. So they're not, now in, in John, you're going to find, we're going to read John here. Uh, you're going to find that they're close enough for Mary, Jesus' mother, to talk to him. Mark says, there were also women looking on from a distance, uh, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger uh, and of Josie, which could also be Joseph, and Salome. So are you ready? Uh, This is interesting, but you talk about uh, rabbit holes and getting confused. Uh, Just hang on. There were uh, women watching. He's got Mary Magdalene. He's got Mary, the mother of, and we'll just put here James and JJ's, the two J's, uh, a mother of James the Younger and of Joses. And again, we don't know anything more about those two. Uh, you know, once maybe that's James the 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 younger, the the little James of the apostles, but that's a son of Elpheus. That's a different. You get that, uh, and then also one named Salome. Okay. Now what we have right here so far, Mary Magdalene. She comes from Magdala, and there is a map of Magdala right there, and you can see where that's at. Here we go. Let's see if I can do this. Watch this. Whoa. So far, so good. I'm just, this is not for your benefit. This is for my benefit. Just see if I can do this. <laughs> There's the Sea of Galilee. There's Magdala. Capernaum, Gergesa, Bethsaida. That's where Peter came from. That's where he had a house. And she's from this place right here. And that's being excavated right now. They're excavating Magdala right now. Anyway, she comes from there. Uh, we also know from Luke that she, this, she had seven demons cast out of her. I think that's what it was, seven demons. Uh, but also, as we go by Mary Magdalene, uh, it, it, we want to point out that, uh, yeah, yeah, right there, seven demons, Luke chapter 8. Uh, she's known as a prostitute or a former prostitute. That is not in the Bible. There's not a verse that says, it says that she had demons cast out. That's something that kind of developed uh, tradition. Now, if it was a historical fact, that became part of the church tradition. Uh, but again, when you say that, that's, you know, you can say that, but it's not, you can't go to a verse that says this about her. Uh, you know, she got seven demons, you know, she had some kind of past. The next one, that's Mary Magdalene. 
Uh, when we read in John in just a moment, John chapter 19, he's going to mention Mary Magdalene for the first time in the book of John. And the reason he's going to do that is because as soon as you turn the page in John, the next chapter, Jesus appearing to her and talking to her. Uh, she's, in a sense, one of the first ones to, and this is radical, because Jesus appears to uh, the women first and then doesn't just appear to them and say, well, that's, that's because that's who is there. Okay, but you can, you're Jesus. You can resurrect and appear to whoever you want to first. I mean, the first person, if, if Peter's the first person that Jesus appears to, Peter would begin his letters. Peter, an apostle, the first one Jesus appeared to. I mean, or whatever, I'm, I'm making this up. But it's like, it would be like something that you want to say, who was the first one you saw when you got back to town? I went and saw, first, time, first person Jesus chooses to see is Mary and, and women. And then he doesn't just appear to them and say, uh, you know, here I am. He says two things, go and tell my disciples. So he sends them with basically the gospel message. Go tell them Jesus has been raised from the dead. So who's the first one to tell the disciples the gospel message? The women or Mary. And then he says, and tell them to meet me in Galilee. And then gives them instructions and tell them here's the directions. Which, and it's been said for years, if you're fabricating the gospels or you're writing them at a later date than the historical document, you've got time to develop the story and you're not going to make this up. And then the Son of God comes out of the grave and appears to uh, Mary and says, go tell my disciples the gospel message first. I, I mean, you'd clean this part up. And there's many things you can be said about that, but just keep that in mind because that's, that's coming up here a little bit more. Okay, so you got Mary Magdalene, Mary's son of uh, James and Josie, and then Salome. Now, when you go to... Uh, John 19, 25, I've got it written right there. You're going to see four women. Now you can go with, well, I'll read it. You can go with two women who are described and then their names are given. So you got two women, but that gives Mary, Jesus' mom, two sisters named Mary. Or you can go with trying to get three instead of four out of here. I think what John is doing is he is describing one, two women, and then giving you the names of three and number four women. And here you go. John writes, and this is when Jesus talks to his mom and says, behold, talks to his mom and John. says, mother, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And then it says, Mary went and lived with John for the rest of her days. Um, it says, standing by the cross of Jesus. Now it says here in Mark, they were a distance away. But if you look on again, if you want to flip over to this page right here, the next page, uh, we say a distance away. Um, here we go, here we go, here we go. When you say a distance away, this is that picture you're familiar with of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here's Cal Calvary, and that's the Holy Sepulchre. I'm standing right here taking the picture. Right here's that X. I'm standing right here. That's Calvary, and it's covered up with building. And the tomb is right here. Like I'm standing right here. The tomb is right here. I'm looking at Calvary right there. And the distance is 100 to 125 feet from there to there. So this is where the cross would have been. You're standing in, at a distance. Mary's going to be close enough to talk to Jesus. 
Uh, so keep that in the whole thing in mind. In Mark, it says they're standing at a distance. Mark says um, this. Mark chapter 19, verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. We're going to add her to the list. This is Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. Now, um, notice right here, John does not say Mary. He says Jesus' mother. John doesn't even mention his name in the entire book of John. He always calls himself the, the disciple Jesus loved. Nor does John name his brother James. We, we got that from the other three Gospels. So John doesn't name his name. He doesn't name his brother's name. And he doesn't name his, uh, uh, his mom's name or Mary right here. He says, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. So now you've got to have Mary's, Mary's sister. So we'll just write sister right here. We're going to be able to fill that blank in here in just a moment. Uh, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we've got Mary now here in John. We've got Mary Magdalene in Mark and John. We've got Mary, the wife of Clopas, which I'm going to tell you right now. This is Clopas's wife and Clopas's two sons. All right? And then we're going to have in John uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, his mother's sister, and this Salome is Mary's sister. Now watch how this all comes together. You don't have to accept this, but of course, if you're going to rebuke it, you're going to do your own research. <laughs> and it's like, and you can't. Uh, so these are, you've got, in Mark, you've got Mary, Mary, Mary Maylene, Mary's mother of uh, James and Joseph, and then Salome. In Mark, or John, you add Mary, Jesus. Am I spelling Mary wrong? Is that right? All of a sudden it just looked really weird. Oh, I know what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Yes, my mind just went. I'm sorry. It's weak. I'm thinking... Mary. <laughs> it's like, and all of a sudden it's like, see right here, switch that. It's like, oh wait, I'm spelling Mary wrong. This is what I'm dealing. This is how this is how I deal with language right here. It's like, oh. So the so if you had any kind of advice, you'd be like, get rid of the whiteboard. <laughs> Just don't use a whiteboard. Stop embarrassing yourself. Okay. Um, okay, so Jesus' mother, uh, and then point, okay, I'm I'm what's that? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be my yeah. Uh, the women are Jesus' mother. Uh, I'm on the bottom of page three. Mary's sister, which is Jesus' aunt on his mother's side, and this would be um, Mary's sister is Salome and her husband. Wait, wait, wait! I did this wrong. Okay, let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. Salome, Jesus' aunt on his mother's side. Mary's sister's name is Salome and her husband. Oh yeah, here it is. Yeah, Zebedee. Now, you know who that is. Salome is Zebedee, and Zebedee's got two sons named John and James, uh, Jesus' disciples, sons of thunder. So that's Salome. Uh, and John never mentioned, okay, very, that's all that, not mentioning it. So this is Salome, Zebedee's wife. She's mentioned by Mark just as Salome. But when it says Salome here in our text, that's James and John's mom. That makes James and John, guess what? Jesus' cousins. 
because this is Salome and Mary are sisters. The next one, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is going to be James and Joseph, that we don't know anything about this James and Joseph, although because Mark's recording their name, the, the readers in Rome, whenever he mentions these names, because there's so few, uh, they must be known by the readers of Rome who these guys are. Now, what's interesting about this, this continues, uh, they're unknown, but according to Hagesippus, which was a writer born in Israel in 110 A.D., it's bottom of page 3, died in Jerusalem on April 7th, 180, this writer, he wrote against the Gnostics, and he was a Christian, but he records in his writings that this Clopas, right here, Clopas, Mary, She's got two sons. He all, they also got another son named Simeon. And Clopas is the brother of Joseph, Jesus' father. So this is Uncle Clopas. These are Jesus' cousins. And this is Aunt Mary on his father's side because she married his father's brother. This is Aunt Salome on his mother's side because she's mary's sister and so these are jesus cousins these are jesus cousins these are his aunts these are his uncles so zebedee the fisherman would have been his uncle because his uncle married his mother's sister now clopas is the father of simeon when jesus this is mary has a son named jesus and then james and then jude james becomes the leader of the church of jerusalem He's pushed off the Temple Mount in 63 AD, not on this corner, but the corner on the other side, a little bit higher, pushed because of the building up there and then the trumpeting stone. James is pushed to his death in 63, and he was the bishop, the leader of the church of, and you can see it in Acts. He's the leader of the church of Acts. No doubt about it. They, they go and meet with James. In Galatians, Paul says, I met with James. 45 AD, 50 AD, J Paul is meeting with James, the head of the church in Jerusalem. He is pushed off the Temple Mount in 63 A.D., clubbed to death, and the person that replaces him, now this is not in the Bible, but it's in church history, is his cousin, Simeon, the son of Clophus. And Simeon is the one who acts on Jesus' words and takes the church out of Jerusalem and across the Jordan River up into Decapolis, the city of Pella, in 66 A.D. when the Jewish wars break out because Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded, flee. And they saw, and John took Mary and fled to Ephesus in Asia Minor. Simeon, Clopas's son, or Mary's son, uh, which would be, you know, his mom, whatever, you got Joseph's brother. Simeon led the church, followed Jesus' word, and led the church over to Decapolis. So what you have here is you've got, in Mark, you've got Mary Magdalene, you've got Mary the mother of James and Joseph, which must be known in Rome, but her husband is Clopas, the brother of Joseph. She's got another son named Simeon who's going to be even more instrumental. And the reason he may not be mentioned uh, is these guys were known in Rome and Simeon hasn't become the leader of the church yet because James is still functioning. So I may be talking about history that Mark is unfamiliar with because it hasn't even happened yet because Mark is recording these things possibly for well not possibly i mean almost absolutely before these if you got an early date or a later date unless you're going to try and make it some forgery in the second century so nonetheless 
The one that's added here in, in James is Mary, Jesus' mother. Otherwise, you've got Mary Magdalene. You've got Mary, the mother of Joseph and, jo and Jane, Joseph, James and Joseph. And then you've got Salome, which is Zebedee's wife, James and John. So that, of course, is, I think, fascinating. I, I hope you enjoyed that. Now, uh, now they're standing, we're on page um, 4, verse 41. When, uh, oh, yeah, we just mentioned the women. I'll read, i got to go back, another verse. Okay, chapter 3, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, uh, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joses, uh, and Salome. Okay, and we, we know who those guys are. Turn the page. Interesting. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, they'd come up from Galilee with him to Jerusalem, not to watch him die. They came up for the Passover, maybe with some intentions. Because now, remember, James and John, they came with the idea that while they're in Jericho, before they got to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what did they ask Jesus? Can we sit on your right and on your left? In other words, and who instigated that? their mom which would be one of them at the cross she is asking jesus if her sons can sit right there on his right and on his left and they did come together and it's like you say well, that's that's a really strange question except for the fact that james his brother becomes the leader of the church and when he's executed clopas's son simeon becomes the leader of the church uh and you know it's just interesting uh but they had followed him up. A lot of them were following him because they thought big things were going to happen. But a lot of them were also taking care of him. They're, they got their sons involved in the ministry, and they were supplying for him, taking care of their needs as they, as far as, you know, probably cooking, whatever. It mentions that in other Gospels. So these women were following them and uh, part of their ministry. Chapter 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, uh, these things are going to take place. Now, the day of preparation, the day of the Sabbath is the next day. That would be a Saturday, obviously. Uh, the day of preparation is the Friday before, and preparation means because you can't do work on Saturday, if you're going to bake bread every day of the week, you've got to bake twice as much bread on Friday because you can't bake it on Saturday. So it's the preparation day. You have your normal day on Wednesday, normal day on Thursday, but what's Friday? Preparation day. We've got to take care of everything we need today and have everything backed up for the next day. If you've got to draw water, we've got to draw twice as much water so we don't have to draw water on the Sabbath. So it's preparation day. And so it's Friday. Besides all this taking place, it's preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. Now, chapter 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, again, this is another whole story here. Uh, we'll just say Joseph and Joseph Arimathea, and I'm right here because we're doing this tonight. There we go. There's a couple Arimathea. You can see on your notes there better. There's Jerusalem. Arimathea could be Rama, Old Testament Rama, just a couple miles northeast, or yeah, not northeast, northwest, more north of Jerusalem. And also it could be this right here. Uh, uh, Arimathea could be up in here, Arama, another city. Those could be the two cities, uh, but we don't know. He's Joseph of Arimathea. He says, a respected member of the consul. So he would be on 
the Sanhedrin. He would be a member of the Sanhedrin along with uh, uh, Nicodemus and many others, including those who tried him, uh, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. And when it says looking for the kingdom of God, that doesn't mean uh, in, in the Christian sense, he was following the scriptures, knowing that God was going to bring about a kingdom, God was going to restore the nation of Israel. He was looking, and not just as a, a political force, but as just like the promise of Abraham coming all the way, that they were going to bless the world, that this kingdom was going to come. So he was, in a sense, a righteous man uh, following the Lord uh, the best he could on his understanding. It goes on and says, a respected member of the council who himself was looking for the kingdom of God, watch, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now you get into Sunday school, you get to reading the Bible, it's like, you get this impression that Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's like, it's like, and finally one guy says, well, I'll go ask if I can have the body. Hey, Pilate, Pilate, you got a minute. Yeah, what do you need? Who are you? I mean, you don't just walk up to Pilate. First, it's late in the day. It's the, it's, it's the ninth hour. It's 3 o'clock, and it's after 3 o'clock because he's, he's already dead. So Joseph is going to go to, and we already said it, when they had the trial, they tried to get the trial scorched right away in the morning because the Romans got up, took care of business the first couple hours of the day, and by 10, 11 o'clock, it's leisure time. I mean, it's like, it's like Friday afternoon by 11 o'clock every day of the week. And, and so come and say, a meeting with Pilate at 3 o'clock, after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're not going to get an audience. He's not going to take care of business. But Josephus means that's how important he was. I mean, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He could go into Pilate, and he took courage and asked Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Now, two things about the body. One, uh, the Romans did not mind if the body stayed on the cross for days. In fact, this was, a, you can see right here, this is the main road going to Emmaus is the road when the, uh, the next day he's going to resurrect. They're going to walk all the way past the place of the crucifixion, right out of Jerusalem, all the way to Emmaus with Jesus after the resurrection. And before they won't realize who he is until he reveals it later on that evening. But, uh, They've got to come in, and you go right by the cross. So if a guy's been hanging there for five, six days, it's kind of like, we don't understand that in the Western world, but that, that would be a deterrent for crime. I mean, the last guy to rob a quick trip, he's still hanging by the, he's still nailed up on a telephone pole somewhere. It's like, you don't be, you know, the last guy that speeded through the neighborhood, yeah, we got him pinned up on the stop sign. It's like, so don't speed. I mean, it would change things. We're like, well, well, you can't. Well, Rome did. And so uh, they didn't mind if a body was hanging on the cross getting eaten by birds the jews in fact they did mind especially on a day like this uh and that is uh point two on page five jews always attempted to bury the body even of the criminal and the enemies the day of their death so if there was a someone being crucified if they were a thief it's like well here it is deuteronomy 21 22 through 23 it says and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree now again that would be hanging on they weren't weren't crucifying people in moses day they weren't even necessarily impaling them um his body shall be remain so they're they're hanging him on a tree somehow uh, the body shall remain shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we don't want a bunch of dead bodies hanging up in the land of the Lord. You're going to execute them, execute them, and then take them down and bury them the same day. 
They don't want the image of death going on. And so the Jews, and especially Josephus, or excuse me, Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Sanhedrin, looking for the kingdom of God, trying to live righteously, knows the law. It's like, we can't have this body on the cross. Plus, we're going to find out he is at some level a secret follower, a secret believer. And there's, I don't want to say discrepancy here, but in one case, he's not up front. Another case, he's secret. Another thing, he's called a believer. So he's going to be a believer. But nonetheless, he, is once, he comes and asks Pilate for the body. Um, uh, we've got these things written down here. Look at point E. Joseph may, on page 5, Joseph may not have yet been a believer or a trusted disciple of the Lord at this time, which would explain why the women stood at a distance watching. Uh, Joseph does become a believer if he is not one at this time. According to Matthew 22, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, what you can do with this, that's the English. The verse was a disciple. The verb is, was, is in the aorist tense, which may translate, became a disciple. So this man, who was a, looking for the kingdom of God, feared God, wanted to keep the law, honored Jesus, was a secret follower, but was not yet a believer, but he was going to become a believer, which again, the way the word is written, you could be was or was going to become. Uh, the fact that Mark identifies him as looking for the kingdom of God, but not a disciple, as does Luke. Uh, Luke says, was looking for the kingdom of God. Uh, John 19, 38 says this, bottom of page 5. Does refer to Joseph as a secret believer. After these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Now, one more interesting thing. When Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, uh, in Acts 13, 28 through 31, he identifies uh, the, uh, I'll just say enemies, the, the opposition as the ones who took the body off the cross and buried him. Listen to Paul's words here. Uh, I've got them written on top of page 6. And though they found, they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They are the enemy, the opposition. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, the crucifixion, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. And they are Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, looking for the kingdom of God. So Paul is, Paul's not presented as, ah, he was buried by a secret believer. This is still in Paul's mind in, in the book of Acts, enemy territory. The enemies took him down, but the enemy is describing the gospel as being a secret believer or a believer or one that's going to become a believer, uh, trying to honor the law, trying to honor the man Jesus. So that's just interesting right there. Joseph of Arimathea is a believer by the end of his life. I mean, he follows Jesus Christ. Some say that like Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they just disappear from history. And there's, there's legends and there's some writings by him, supposedly, and that's always questionable. But the idea is uh, they would have been found out and they, they were no longer elite. They were no longer wealthy. They were no longer on the Sanhedrin. They were ostracized. It cost them. They suffered for what they had done. Again, apparently. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, you see. I mean, 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 6 hours, he's dead. So Pilate, what? He's dead. So he, he's aware of this, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. What centurion did he summon? He summoned the centurion that just says, surely this was the Son of God, which was a possibly a statement revealed to him by God the Father, if you go with Matthew, not saying this was a victorious man like Caesar Augustus and Alexander the Great. He calls in the centurion. And so Pilate is waiting for the centurion while Joseph is there waiting for the report. It, did he really die? The centurion says. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And this is the same centurion. Okay, point two. Joseph, uh, being a member of the elite class, along with the Okay, da, da, da. And Joseph, now there's five things in this next verse. Verse 46. Joseph does these things. Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And so there you've got five things written down there of what Josephus does. Uh, there, I think I've got them written right there. They're on your notes right there, the five things he does. And there's a picture of a tomb that you've seen before. Again, this is a first century tomb. They buried people like this between 100 B.C. and 70 A.D. It was a two-stage burial, as we know. We've talked about it. One, they would wrap the body in a cloth and lay it on a shelf in a tomb. And then a year later, after the body had decomposed, they would collect the bones and put the bones in an ossuary, a stone box, and then set them on a shelf or in one of the niches in the, in the tomb right there. And so I've got on page 7, first of all, in the square box in the Greek, fine linen, it is the word syndon. It means fine linen cloth and refers to a single piece of cloth that would be laid, that they'd be opened up, the body would be laid in, and then it'd be covered over like a sheet, and the body would be carried. It's exactly like the Shroud of Turin. I mean, it's like, you can do your own research on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's, it's amazing. Some doubt it. Some think it's amazing. But nonetheless, that is what it would have been. It would have been like something like that. They didn't wrap him up like a mummy, okay? It would have been like the Shroud of Turin. It would have been like that. And then underlined is and numbered one two three four five is the five things joseph arimathea does bought the piece of fine linen. now it's not like something he like uh i'll go get one he bought it apparently went out and bought it sees jesus asked for the body and goes and buys this they have preparation time is running short took down the body so he's the one who takes the body down unless he's got servants and has the servants do it but joseph is the one credited as taking the body down wrapped Jesus in the piece of fine linen, laid Jesus in a tomb, and once again, I could pop the picture back up here of 100 feet, how far? He, the body was right there on the cross, 100, 125 feet later, he brings him to the tomb, and the tomb was a tomb that he had made for himself, laid Jesus in the tomb, and then rolled a stone to the door of the tomb, just like this, and this is a first century tomb. There's a little groove right here where you can see how you could roll it back and forth, and this could be, there would be weighted, you know, balance the trough and stuff for the slant and stuff, that you could have one person. It wasn't like a huge event. The women were concerned about how you're going to roll it back, but to roll it here, and it would be used more than once. Some things about this, 
uh, point three, I forgot the year, between 100 B.C. to 70 A.D., because once the temple falls and Jerusalem has fallen, this burial practice stops. This kind of burial practice stops. So we know this is from around the time of Jesus. This is in Galilee. There's a road. You see right back here the road? I cut it out of the picture. They were making this road. They came up here and they found this tomb with this stone right here like this. They put the metal band around it so it didn't break in the winter and change so you could see it. And I showed you pictures of going inside there. And inside on this on the Mount of Olives, you can't see it from here, but right down here in the Kidron Valley, this is the tomb right here, one of the tombs that you can see there. And what you have here, as we've talked about before, you've got, uh, there's a bench. You can go in this room. I was in this room, and there's a bench right here carved out, and a bench right here, and a bench over here. So it's three benches going around. And these are called... I, these are little niches right here. They're called kokim in the Hebrew, kokim right here. Or in the Latin, they're called loculi. And they're like two feet wide, up to two feet wide, up to seven feet deep. And you could lay the body on the bench in the tarp, tarp, in the linen. Uh, or you could slide them in there. And then you would, after a year, the body decomposed, you'd open up the cloth, you'd collect the bones, the bigger bones, and you'd put them into a stone box, an ossuary. Um, I've got pictures I could grab somewhere, but I've got them on here too. Of course, I've got them on here. Now, you see that, that uh, this right here, that bench? In Mark 16, uh, they're going to go in the tomb, and an angel is going to be sitting on the bench. He's gonna, the, the, the body was here, and the angel is going to be sitting on the opposite side, having like, well, and just kind of like, well, that's where it was. It's not, and so the angel's sitting this is not the tomb. This is on the Mount of Olives, but it would have been built just like when it says the angel was sitting, that he's sitting right there. Um, and here are the ossuaries. There's some ossuaries right there. They're about this big, you know, like this. Uh, and you can see there's some more right there. Those are just sitting around on the Mount of Olives in some places. You can go see them. They'd have the name inscribed on them. And after a year, the body would lay there for a year. They'd come back a second a year later, the family, friends, they'd collect the bones, put the bigger bones at the bottom, the smaller bones they'd stack up, put the lid on it, put the name on it, and then slide it back into one of those niches, one of those uh, coking right there. Um, there's those pictures. And, uh, okay, chapter, bottom of page 8, or bottom of page, yeah, bottom of page 8, chapter 15, verse 47, he took the body, buried it, put it in the tomb, and, and we can see that this is where the tomb's at today. It was something he made for himself. And you could use these over and over again. Once you took that body, you could see there's enough room on the benches. You could have two or three people actually laid in there. If you had tragedy, you have several people. But once those bones were collected and set in there, their name was on it. You just wait for someone else. And they put there. And you'd eventually, Caiaphas, the tried Jesus, they found his family tomb. Uh, a few years ago, they, they were doing some excavating work with a caterpillar, fell in the ground, fell into the tomb. And they actually found a, a, an ossuary. It says, got Joseph of Caiaphas, his name written right on it, and his bones, the bones of the high priest that tried Jesus, they're in a museum today. They, they have them, and they've got the inscription. And see, these are highly ornated. Uh, some of them are simple, uh, and not everybody could afford to do that. Not everybody could afford to cut out a tomb and then have a, an ossuary and have your, your you know, own little stone tomb around Jerusalem. So you're talking about some well-to-do people, and the more ornate they are, the more wealthy they are. And, and the high priest one was very ornate. I'll tell you this, they have found one that's, again, 
controversial, and I think it's solid. It's gone through some court cases. They found one that's got uh, the name James, uh, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus on it. Uh, and they said, well, that was a forgery, and they've done a lot of research. They can find, you know, the, it, it, when it was carved, uh, patina, if the patina's grown over it or built up in it or not. And it's, they, they, it was thrown out at one time, and the, later on it was, it was confirmed. And we're talking about high courts. We're talking about big deals, archaeology. We're not talking about some freaky guy that says he's found something. This is like front and center of archaeology and science. And it, the last v- decision was this was a legitimate carving now his james's bones we don't know we, the bones it was empty we don't know but it was definitely the conclusion was this was definitely belonged to for someone named james whose father was joseph and had a brother named jesus and you don't you don't put your brother's name on your coffin you put your father's name not your brother unless your brother's like caesar augustus alexander the great or jesus of nazareth uh, and with that being said mary magdalene and mary the mother of Joses saw where he was laid and so that's mary the wife of clopas joseph's brother so jesus aunt mary and uncle clopas and mary the mother of simon who was the second leader of the church these guys are the same person mary Magdalene and uh the guy's gonna be the second leader of the church his mom were there at the cross and that sets the stage up for chapter 16 of mark which will begin next week uh i'll pray and we're out of time Father, we thank you again for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would honor your word, that we'd allow your word to transform our lives, that we'd recognize Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, the man who's returned from the dead that has now secured our our future in, in his work, and we look forward to growing in our understanding and experiencing this resurrection power in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thank you for your time.